Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. We're trying to promote the idea that all our st students should have the opportunity to learn in a culturally responsive and affirming environment. All students should have the opportunity to read wonderful literature and all students deserve to be taught to read fluently and pull the print off the page and that none of those things are mutually exclusive. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. Tanji Reed Marshall is off, but we'll be back next week. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're returning to our discussion about reading instruction. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the Council of Chief State School Officers has asked its members to make reading instruction a key focus. This is the organization that represents state school superintendents and commissioners, so this is a big deal. I've linked to the Council's report in the show notes so you can go read it for yourself, but at the core, the CCSSO is asking all state school superintendents to organize their work and the work of their departments around improved reading instruction. To give a little context to the CCSSO's report, when the National Assessment of Educational Progress reported 2019 reading scores, there was disappointment all across the nation. Reading scores for almost every group of students either declined or stayed flat. The only state that showed a statistically significant improvement on the fourth grade assessment was Mississippi. Bad news for the rest of us, but it was really good news for Mississippi. Its fourth grade readers now match the national average. Mississippi's improvement has caused a lot of people to rush to understand what the state has done. And it turns out it has done quite a lot to improve the training that aspiring and existing teachers get in reading instruction. In the show notes, I will link to a podcast done by American Public Media's Emily Hanford describing some of them. So way to go, Mississippi. My hope is that research will link the higher scores to improve state policies and practice, but we have to wait to see if that's the case. In the meantime, a lot of other states have also been working on improving their reading instruction, and we've asked three people to talk about their efforts. The first is Dr. Lisa Coons, Chief Academic Officer for the Tennessee State Department of Education. The second is Dr. Heather Pesky, Senior Associate Commissioner for the Massachusetts Department of Education. And the third is Catherine Tarka, Director of Literacy and Humanities for the Massachusetts Department of Education. Welcome everyone. I should say right up front that Dr. Pesky and I know each other from years ago when she led the teacher quality work at the Education Trust. So this is a really nice opportunity for me to be able to talk with her again. So, both Tennessee and Massachusetts have recently undertaken some really significant actions in an attempt to improve reading instruction. But first I wanna ask what role the reading scores played. Tennessee's been working for years on improving its schools, but its reading scores were flat on the 2019 NAEP. Dr. Coons, did that come as a shock? Was that a, was that a spur for the legislature to act? 
I think it was a critical piece to look at our fourth and eighth grade NAEP scores and to look at that flat um, improvement, despite everything that's been going on and everybody working towards reading, that was helpful. And it complemented or negatively complemented our TCAP, which is our comprehensive state assessment data, which shows a decline from fourth to eighth grade. So not only are we seeing NAEP scores that are flat, but our stat state data also shows a decline as students enter higher and higher grades. So we knew that, you know, despite the work in Race to the Top, and then we had another initiative in 2015, we needed to take a very comprehensive and deep approach for literacy in our state that combined the vision of our governor, of our General Assembly, and our Department of Education, and really looked at a comprehensive approach that moved all stakeholders into um, the focus on literacy, similar to what CCSSO has asked us to focus on. Um, Dr. Pesky, Massachusetts is in a different position. Its students have long scored above the national average, it, um, but it dropped quite a bit in 2019. Was that a clarifying moment for the state? Is that something policymakers in Massachusetts pay attention to? We do pay attention to the National Assessment of Educational Progress. It's it's a benchmark against which we can hold ourselves accountable and against which we can diagnose how we're doing uh, in comparison to other states, as well as in comparison to ourselves over time. So in 2019, the percentage of eighth grade students who performed at or above the NAEP proficient level was 45% of our students compared to 49% in 2017. I mean, yes, that's a decrease and it's concerning, but I think it's just the, the at the basic level, the data itself is concerning when fewer than half of your eighth graders are performing at or above a proficient level. So although we're widely acknowledged as a state that has attained number one status on the NAEP or on other international assessments, we're actually quite concerned and we're not satisfied given that we have um, strong and large gaps in our performance particularly for students of color, when we disaggregate the reading data by student demographics. So when success on the NAEP in 2019 in eighth grade reading means that our schools are supporting only 26% of black and only 22% of Latinx students to achieve proficient reading levels, that is very concerning. And that causes us to double down even more than we already have on, on our reading initiatives, which we'll talk about in a bit. I think we're just not satisfied in terms of looking at the data when the difference in measured reading abilities between white, Latinx, and Black students has not changed significantly in 15 years. So do we pay attention to it? Yes. And do we use it to try to catalyze new and deeper work? Yes. So we've already kind of heard hints about this, uh, about the two states' very different approaches to the same question, right? Both are... Both states are alarmed or concerned, um, but I wonder if we could flesh that out a bit. Dr. Coons, Tennessee's efforts were spur, are, are being spurred directly by the state legislature. Is that right? Um, could you talk about what the legislature has done and what work has started with, you know, what that what work within your department has been spurred by the legislature? Sure. So um, last spring, we brought a lot to the legislature and a focus on literacy. But given the COVID-19 pandemic, we were not able to really come together for any focused impact um, during the spring. So I would say there was a, a significant collaborative work between 
the department, the governor, and the General Assembly. The governor in December asked the General Assembly to look specifically at learning acceleration and literacy, and we really came together as a group, and they passed the Tennessee Literacy Succeeds Act. And in the Tennessee Literacy Succeeds Act, they created a policy framework that requires foundational skills instruction, requires universal screener, requires communication with families, and requires a much deeper system that districts need to opt into. In addition to that, the Tennessee Department of Education has been working over the past year to work with federal funds, federal grants, and put together the options that are free for districts to engage in. So while the legislature gave us a policy framework, which really outlines the requirements for districts to opt into, we at the State Department have also provided a wealth of free resources and high quality free options for them to take advantage of. So they all have access and they all have equitable opportunities to engage in the policy framework that has been required by the legislature. So it's been not just the legislature spurning on that effort, it's been the legislature saying, we're gonna hold districts accountable to this framework, but the department has really worked on making sure that the resources are available for every district, despite whatever situation they're in, and that we've funded high quality opportunities for them to engage in at no cost to ensure that whether they choose as a district to go in one direction to meet that policy framework from the legislature, or they choose the free options that the state department offers, they can have access for all learners, no matter what size district or what fiscal health that district is in. So what kind of free resources do you mean? Do you mean curricula or training or... Well, I lovingly call the resources the Cheesecake Factory menu of options because there are so many things in, in the Reading 360 um, framework that, that we are providing through the State Department. So one of the first key pieces of that is training. And we know from the past that just training is not enough to help our teachers launch and focus on literacy. You can't have them come to a five-day training, walk away and implement successfully. There are components of that training. So within this training opportunity, they have five days of asynchronous training, which really digs into the why of the science of reading, why foundational skills, why do you take this approach for teaching children to read? Then there's another five days that we have over 12,000 teachers signed up for over the summer for five days of in-person training, talking about why materials are important to teaching. Why do I need to use high quality materials? Why do they help me teach reading? And how do they help me teach reading? Then our districts have the opportunity after they participate in those trainings to provide coaching within the classroom. So it's not just a five day, go to training, walk away and go back to your classroom and hope you have those materials or resources and support to implement that high quality reading instruction. So the training in, in this approach really looks at the why of the work, how do I do that work, and who's going to support me when I get back in the classroom. So it is a deep approach at training that is different than anything that we've taken on at the State Department before. Another piece of those free options is we are putting districts together into networks and really studying district practice, principal practice, teacher practice that moves reading and how to move that work efficiently. So we're funding networks, we're funding the ability to have support from those networks and really help those districts study the problem of practice of reading and work together to create sustainable change within their districts. We also have developed a pretty expansive online literacy tool, which has 
free curriculum. It has free videos of how to teach that curriculum. It has one of the largest set of at-home free resources for families, including a reading app, decodables they can order at no cost, videos that help support them in creating that language-rich environment at home. We have grants for tutoring, specifically on literacy. We have grants for our educator prep programs and our leader prep programs that help them think about how they prepare teachers and leaders to teach reading in the classroom. We have intensive partnerships with our regional offices for our at-risk districts. Um, We're working to build a pretty robust assessment of literacy suite of tools that help districts have screeners, progress monitoring, parent communication interventions, and then a large public awareness campaign because we've been doing this for a long time. And as we mentioned, our NAEP data has been flat for a long time. So how do we get every person in Tennessee focused on literacy? We have an expansive public awareness campaign to help our communities, our stakeholders, our after school um, providers, our dyslexia association, our parent advocates, so that everyone can wrap around reading and we can give them things they can do, things they can support, ways to and avenues to be a part of this reading initiative. So it's really a comprehensive approach that looks at all of those different stakeholders and looks at all of those different stakeholders as partners in the work, rather than just pushing on our teachers or our districts. We are all in this together. And if we're really going to change the opportunities for literacy, every stakeholder in Tennessee has to move that work. And it really did start with the legislature saying, this is what you have to do. But they're only one piece of our puzzle, right? We have to have all, all of the community partners and and folks going in the same direction. So this is an opportunity for the legislature to start that policy framework, but for us to pull everybody together and those free opportunities and free resources that are super high quality for districts, communities, and our um, stakeholders to engage in. Well, this this sounds like Tennessee is viewing this with a great sense of urgency, perhaps made even more urgent by uh, the COVID pandemic. You know, maybe the the sense of urgency is even hei- is heightened even more. I d- I don't know, but but is Massachusetts bringing that sense of urgency to this question, Heather? Uh, it it's really hard for me to call you, Doctor Pesky. That's I'm fine. Sorry. Please call me Heather. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, your question about is Massachusetts bringing this sense of urgency? Yes, we this, are. This, I mean, this is an incredible array of uh, initiatives that she just described. Can you match it? <laughs> no, we cannot. And yet, I would say that um, where uh, Dr. Coons described the cheese fake, the cheesecake factory approach, I would say we're trying to be a more uh, specific menu of options that we can support. So at this stage, most of our efforts around improving literacy in Massachusetts are driven by the State Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. We do not have the legislative mandate that Tennessee described, although I will describe how our legislature supports us. So just this past fall of 2020, uh, the department launched something that we call Mass Literacy, which is a statewide effort to empower educators with evidence-based practices for literacy that all students need. So for us, this was a really big deal because for the first time as a state agency, we made clear the literacy practices that are evidence and research-based that we expect to see in classrooms. So we set out, you know, we set out this mass literacy work. Um, we provided guidance on scheduling, staffing, database decision-making, the types of assessments you could use, 
and the pedagogical practices that should be used for pre-K through two literacy. Now, it's not required for our districts to follow this guidance, but we're in the middle of a massive campaign like Tennessee, we're trying to engage our educators in partnership here um, to engage them around this guidance. We're focused on providing grants where we can. We're focused on creating resources, such as access to high quality curricular materials, which Catherine Tarka will talk about in a minute. And we're also focused on connecting educators to the information and support that they need in order to be able to implement these practices. Now, the question of the role of the state legislature is still important. So I do wanna note that in 2018, for example, our state legislature in Massachusetts passed a new law that requires us as a department to issue guidance in developing screening procedures or protocols for students that demonstrate one or more potential indicators of a neurological learning disability, including but not limited to dyslexia. So this was a very specific targeted focus statute that requires us to build this guidance and asks districts to implement these screening procedures. I would also add that the state legislature has supported what we call the early grade literacy grant, which has allowed us to award about $1 million, excuse me, $1 million each year in recent years to support districts around their early literacy efforts. So it's a more, I would say in contrast to Tennessee, um, we are as galvanized as Tennessee is around the data and the critical need and sense of urgency to well-serve students, to well-teach them in terms of literacy learning, um, especially as we contend with the results of the pandemic. Um, and we're doing that in a, in a way that is perhaps more targeted and focused um, because just frankly, we don't have the amount of resources and we don't have a legislative mandate as Tennessee does. So Ms. Tarka, Heather's talking about a fairly high level state policy, you know, providing resources, grants, and so forth. As the Director of Literacy and Humanities, you're the person who's actually working with who? Are you working with district level um, folks? Are you working with school level folks, teacher preparation programs, principal preparation programs, publisher? Like, what is it that your work? Because um, you're you're actually the person who's supposed to get this work done, right? So what does that look like? Yes, the, the short answer is a little bit of all of the above, um, but we have a, a small but mighty literacy team and we work primarily with school and district leaders who are actively working towards improving their students' experiences in literacy and humanities. Um, we do offer some direct professional development, both for leaders and for in-service teachers that is needed off often requested, it's always well received, but the challenge there for us is scale. We, we just can't reach the tens of thousands of teachers and administrators that serve a role that impacts early grades literacy with direct services um, from our position in, at the state level. So more often we focus on developing resources and professional learning opportunities for people in roles like district literacy director or district literacy coordinator or assistant superintendent because those are the individuals that are directly driving instructional decisions about literacy in the elementary schools across our state. And we wanna make sure those individuals in particular are super well-informed about evidence-based practices and that they're able to lead um, equipped with information and resources in their local context. So are you engaged in a, um, in a, uh, an education campaign of educators? Um, in other words, 
you're not you you're not mandating anything. You're not saying you really need to use three or four of these curricula that we have chosen. You're saying, have you heard about the science of reading? Do you know about it? Do you, you know, how, how are your kids learning to read? Because there might be a better way. Is that, am I reading that correctly? That's right. We're not mandating any particular instructional approaches or curricular materials in Massachusetts. But we do have a lot of teachers and administrators asking for direction on making those decisions and asking for help sifting through the large amount of information that's available from a lot of different sources, in books, articles, and on the internet, information that often contradicts each other to identify what sources of information they should be listening to and what types of um, studies or recommendations they should really be seeking out and, and, and using to make their teaching and learning decisions. Um, we have really found that the science of reading um, as a term and as an idea has gotten a bad rap in some places in our state, and we're trying to actively counteract that when we are talking about our state initiative for evidence-based early literacy, which is, as Heather mentioned, is called mass literacy. Um, in our mass literacy guide, um, which we launched in 2020, we articulate the evidence-based practices that uh, we wish to see enacted in our schools in Massachusetts because they really have the strongest evidence base behind them. Those include teaching and learning practices, culturally affirming practices, practices for assessment, intervention, and multi-tiered system of support. Um, we don't really talk much about the science of reading with that specific term. Um, we have heard from educators that they are worried about um, the explicit and systematic instruction really equaling drill and kill. Um, or when they hear the term science of reading, they think that that just means phonics and it will completely drain away the love of reading and create an unwelcoming, unaffirming school environment for our young learners. That's, of course, not what evidence-based practice means or has to look like. We're trying to promote the idea that all our students should have the opportunity to learn in a culturally responsive and affirming environment. All students should have the opportunity to read wonderful literature and all students deserve to be taught to read fluently and pull the print off the page and that none of those things are mutually exclusive. It's a hard, it's a hard sell though sometimes, right? So um, I've started worrying about the, the term science of reading because it seems to be being used as a bludgeon instead of science. Science is a continual inquiry, right? You know, what what works best under which conditions in what context, right? We did an episode with Tim Shanahan, reading researchers Tim Shanahan and neuroscientist DJ Bolger, um, where we kind of tried to pick apart. There are a couple of sciences, right? There's the science of reading, which is the science of the mind absorbing print and what happens within the mind. And then there's the science of reading instruction, which includes a whole heck of a lot of stuff. So this question is absolutely key. Like, and you're, you're at the intersection of it, right? You've got a lot of teachers who have been trained that to, to think of phonics as boring. And um, that's, it, it doesn't have to be. Of course, you can make phonics boring. You can make anything boring <laughs> for a four-year-old, but you don't have to make it boring. 
Um, so how are you navigating that within your state? Because you, you've got a strong local curriculum tradition. You've got strong local control tra- tradition. You, when you say you're small but mighty, I believe you're small but mighty, but you're small. And state departments in general are small. So like how, how do you even think about getting to all the, all the literacy coordinators in the, dis- in the state? We have found that, um, as I mentioned earlier, working with our um, district level literacy leaders is a really effective inroad to communicating with all our educators. So we have over 400 local education agencies in Massachusetts. It's a lot for a relatively small state. We serve a million students. So um, we are able to bring together a, a number of our district literacy leaders in the hundreds. And for instance, the network of literacy leaders that we've convened this year has focused on the mass literacy guide. And we have focused the conversation on um, promoting and exploring and discussing the practices that have evidence to suggest that they are beneficial for most students or even necessary for most students. We often talk about certain practices like explicit and systematic, systematic phonics instruction as being Um, necessary for some, beneficial for all, and harmful for none. Um, So we're really focused not on um, sort of existential questions of what is science, what what theories should we be looking at. We try to focus on practices that have been shown to be beneficial for nearly all students, harmful for none, and there is no reason why uh, our students in Massachusetts shouldn't have access to being taught with these practices. Is this being welcomed or resisted? When you talk to the district literacy coordinators, are they reading the newspaper or are they listening avidly? I would say nearly every leader that I've interacted with is open and asking questions and learning more. Um, some people are already really far along on their journey of exploring scientifically based reading and writing practices and are fully on board with implementing curricula that utilize those practices. Um, Other leaders are concerned about some of the tropes we talked about earlier, that implementing more phonics will suck the love of reading out of their classrooms, or that explicit and systematic phonics instruction is not differentiated and thus damaging to children who might need more or less time than a typical or average child on phonics skills. Um, often we hear the concern that quote unquote scientifically based practices are not culturally affirming and cannot be culturally relevant. Um, all of these um, questions are totally valid and I think part of the learning process and those are the issues we're trying to explore and move forward on so that all kids can be taught with the, pra- the cognitive practices that we know to be the most beneficial for most students while at the same time continuing to be in that culturally affirming environment that does help them learn to love to read. Dr. Coons, does this resonate with you? Is this, are are these kinds of conversations what you're having in Tennessee or not? Somewhat, I think we we use science of reading on national calls, but we never use it in the state of Tennessee because we have been in that your science versus our science versus this science. We really, with with our legislatures, we do use a phonics-based approach because that is something that they can wrap their heads around. But publicly, we talk about sounds first and driving with sounds and how important it is to hear sounds and that language-rich approach to literacy. Um, We are 
seeing a deep engagement. We actually have a waiting list for our training, a waiting list for our implementation networks. So our districts and everybody are getting very excited about our work. We're not getting a lot of pushback um, from theoretical spaces, but we are trying to align everyone in moving forward in, the, in a cohesive way that talks about sounds, talks about those foundational pieces to learn, to read, to have that ability to read, to apply skills and then build knowledge. So we're really talking about the ability to read and then the ability to be literate and how important that is for all children and how we bring that together in, in a coherent way. And, and we do have all of our stakeholders coming together to have that conversation. We have an early literacy advisory council that oversees this work and has our ed preps, has some of our legislative members, has some of our school leaders, and, and ha we have the Liebens actually on that early literacy advisory council, David, Dan Willingham, and a few others, just to be our think tank about what makes sense for our focus. But we do have a deep focus around the sounds first, around that access to language and reading, and then thinking about what do I need to do to be a literate reader? What do I need to do to, with skills and ability to build knowledge and ability to think about what I'm reading and write about what I'm reading? So we are talking about that whole comprehensive approach. But sometimes when you're with different stakeholders, you have to use those terms that make sense and resonate with those stakeholders. So we have taken a pretty intentional approach with our Early Literacy Advisory Council about how we speak about that and how we talk about it in different venues. So that everyone is moving cohesively forward because as we spoke before this is pretty comprehensive it is pretty intense so we want to make sure that all of those stakeholders and all of those audience members can buy in and move forward because it's about our children it's about giving them the opportunities that they may not otherwise have and, and we are really focusing on the opportunity and the access to high quality instruction and making sure that everyone um, can have that opportunity so we're having some pretty positive conversations but we have been pushing on these conversations for about 18 months to all be walking in the same direction. So excited to have that. What is interesting to us is actually social media has really helped us and helped create an intense interest in moving the work forward. So some of the debates um, on social media have actually spurned people to become bigger advocates of this work and have really helped tell the story of where this has been successful in Tennessee and kind of building some momentum. So we are really leveraging some of the national conversations and some of those pieces to get people excited about helping children um, learn to read and, and using language that makes sense for all of our stakeholders. Well, one of the big pushes, it seems to me, is is Emily Hanford's podcast, right? She, um, she the American public media reporter, she first did a podcast on dyslexia. And right after that, I saw her at an Education Writers Association meeting, and she kind of laid out what she was thinking. And I just thought, oh, you're going to blow this thing apart. You know, like, uh, she she was where I was 20 years ago, but I was ineffective in my, <laughs> I was completely ineffective in what I did. She has really focused a lot of attention on um on the, you know, the way that we teach kids to read and the way we teach teachers to teach kids to read, right? Um, which I think has uh, really spurred, it was part of the spur for CCSSO, I believe. Uh, you know, they they brought her in as a, I don't know, a con, I don't know if consultant is the right word, but they brought her in to, 
to help them think through this uh, call for, for improved reading instruction. One of the big things that the state legislature did in Tennessee was to put in place this third grade retention policy. Um, I personally have real reservations about this, but that is a very popular uh, kind of move among legislators. They, they, they kind of can see it, right? Like, don't go on to fourth grade if you can't read at a third grade level. They they can see it. They can they can understand that, um, and it's something that Mississippi did, and other states have done it. Also, Ohio has has long had it. Um, how many students in Tennessee are in danger of being retained at this point? Um, and and what specifically is the plan to not have them be retained? because I presume that's the plan. Yep. So I'm going to step back a little bit. We had a third grade retention law already in policy. They reconnected this to our learning acceleration, which actually has an improvement to our current past um, third grade reading retention, which said you could retain. This actually says that districts have to provide summer programming and or tutoring for our students who are close to not proficient. And then students who are far behind they also have to do both. So districts have to provide summer programming and they have to provide tutoring. So this this space where we're in the third grade retention actually puts students first and ensures that districts have to provide much deeper supports than they did in the past. Before, the third grade retention was there. It was vague. It was cloudy. Districts had some autonomy to do what they needed to do there. And we didn't have any teeth to ensure that districts were supporting their children and providing opportunities for deep support for children. The new um, retention space ties that to our Learning Acceleration Act, which requires summer programming for between four and six weeks for any student um, rising into first through eighth grade. Um, It requires two hours a day of literacy instruction, requires an hour of intervention through the summer programming content, and that wraps through the next five years that summer programming in some way, shape, or form. So two years, pretty intensive to help us through the COVID-19 and then longer term for our kiddos who are who are still struggling in certain grade levels. But then it also launches this tutoring space and it capitalizes on the research we're learning around high dosage tutoring and how to support our kiddos with tutoring. So districts now have to put in additional supports. Those supports are pretty streamlined and pretty clearly outlined in um, the legislation and, and the ability for districts to do that is funded. And there are, there are funding sources for our districts now so that they don't have a funding opt-out. They don't have a legislative opt-out to support our children. It, it, does, it does reach quite a bit. It's about two-thirds of our children would be in that space if they didn't have these supports. So our intent is to really look at strengthening their summer programming, their um, learning acceleration camps, their deep dive into the literacy gaps that they are the unfinished learning they might have right now. Then think about deep high dosage tutoring for an entire year and to see if those kinds of supports help our children and really accelerate that learning. Because right now, what we're doing isn't working. We have two thirds of our children who would be eligible for retention under this law. This law does not take place until 2023. So that allows us time to learn about these supports and ensure that these supports are moving our students' needs forward and that we make sure our districts have the right tools 
for summer programming and the right resources for tutoring. So there'll be lots of funds that are provided to our districts, lots of opportunities, lots of resources from the state department, but we are holding our districts accountable to deeply supporting our students who are behind and ensuring they receive those supports. So has Massachusetts, you don't have a third grade retention? No. We do not have that policy. We have never considered this that policy. I would note that we're number one in the nation on NAEP and we don't have a retention policy, given the research and the evidence that it's harmful to students to retain them. And I think this policy is particularly problematic given the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on students who live in poverty, students of color, students who are English learners. These are the students who are traditionally retained and so I, I cannot see that policy ever taking place in Massachusetts. And I'm glad to say that. Um, I would say now we're working to support districts to accelerate student learning, to support unfinished teaching and learning. But I think when we look at retention policies, we really have to say, who is this punishing? And, and why is this the policy we are instituting? And to what end? So two very, like, diametrically opposed. But what that provides us with is some real um, some real uh, data moving forward, right? We can we can see if the Tennessee third grade initiative has an effect. Um, I mean I can I can name schools and districts where it it had an effect. I think they're really rare, um, honestly. I uh, I I don't think Generally speaking, I haven't seen an effect uh, that's salut that I would consider salutary. <laughs> but um, so, so one of the key elements, it seems to me, is this question of teacher training. If you could talk about how you're approaching teacher training in terms of literacy instruction. Sure, I can jump in first and speak about what we're doing in Massachusetts to address the training that pre-service teachers are receiving in their preparation programs. Um, one thing we've done in Massachusetts that was a relatively large undertaking was to revise our state guidelines for teacher preparation, in particular for reading specialists. Um, in Massachusetts, the reading specialist license um, is granted to a professional that often serves as both an interventionist and a literacy coach in an elementary school context. So these folks are the, are the ones who um, can and should and tend to have the most advanced knowledge of literacy, teaching, and learning in their building. Um, so we've revised the guidelines for how reading specialists are to be prepared in our education educator preparation programs. We've also embarked on really heavily revising our licensure tests for teacher candidates to reflect the evidence-based practices that we believe pre-service teachers need to be learning in their preparation programs, and that will guide what they are then taught in their preparation programs. And um, one example is we recently completed an overhaul of the Foundations of Reading Massachusetts Test for Educator licensure. We updated it and aligned it more closely with mass literacy and current practices. And um, teachers and uh, pre-service teachers in Massachusetts across several different licensure areas, including elementary um, educators, have to pass that Foundations of Reading test in order to be licensed. So that's that's a big change. It sounds like to me changing what incoming teachers need to know. Is this just for elementary teachers or all teachers? 
So several different teacher preparation pro, um, programs are going to have to take that test. So early childhood teachers, elementary teachers, um, as I mentioned, the reading specialist test is also being updated. Um, we do think that changing the test is an important signal of what practices we expect pre-service teachers are going to be taught in their program in order to be adequately prepared to serve our students in Massachusetts. Um, it's, and it's not just the test that we're changing. There's several other steps that we're looking at regarding educator preparation. Um, one thing we're looking at are the criteria that are used for educator preparation program review and accountability, because at the state agency, we are, of course, also responsible for reviewing and um, approving educator preparation programs. Um, we're also trying to make additional supports available to faculty and supervising practitioners for their own learning, learning about what the state expectations are and learning um, the up-to-date evidence base on reading and writing acquisition. So one example of that is we're developing an online course that aligns to the content in the Mass Literacy Guide, and that's going to be available free to any educator that wants to take it, either at the K-12 level or at the, at the higher ed level. Interesting. Um, and are you doing something similar in Tennessee, Dr. Coons? We actually, as part of that Reading 360, there, there is an opportunity for our ed prep providers and our leader prep providers to design and redesign their ed prep courses to ensure that it has that scientifically based approach for reading. So that is one piece on the opportunity side. So we have, I think, seven grants that are going to different ed preparation um, providers who will design models that other districts can apply. In the literacy bill, there are requirements and new requirements, both in the assessment, similar to the mass literacy, the teaching of reading foundations course, our assessment that will be increased in Tennessee in 2023-24, but there are also increased expectations in the coursework that our teachers are our aspiring teachers are taking. So there's a couple of different things we're working on in the ed prep. It is that assessment that is definitely aligned that all teachers will take. It is coursework that they're going to take and really inspiring, you know, our ed preps to redesign and rethink what they're doing and to incorporate those scientific based practices into models that they can spread across their community. Just staying on the ed prep. Uh, I mean, you, you said leader, you know, the leader uh, preparation programs as well. And it seemed to me that one of the weaknesses of what the CCSSO called for was that they talked a lot about teacher preparation. And uh, there was one kind of throwaway line around uh, school leaders. And what I have observed is that you can train teachers all you want. If their principals don't understand what they're doing, their principals are going to be requiring them to do the things that the principals know, and they're not going to set up the structures and the systems that teachers need in order to really be fully uh, effective reading teachers. Um, and so I thought that was a weakness of the CCSSO report. And I'm wondering how, how both of your states are addressing leader preparation in this, in this regard. Sure. So um, we, we do have grants that are directly tied to the leader preparation programs and in incorporating those reading components into leader preparation. But I think 
you know, anytime you're talking about teachers, anytime you're talking about leaders, you're talking about aspiring teachers and aspiring leaders and practicing leaders. So not only do we have this reading course that walks our teachers through that space, our principals have access to that course, but we are also focusing our principals practice on the feedback they give teachers. We know that the number one way to change teacher practice is the feedback that their school leader gives them. So we are really equipping and focusing our school leaders on using an instructional practice guide that they walk through and give teachers practice specifically on foundational skills, which means our leader prep programs need to build those skills and that understanding of those skills and our aspiring principles. And our current principles also need to understand what foundational skills instruction should look like and how I give feedback. So we're building our focus on our leaders around how they give feedback to teachers and giving them a concrete tool to learn about, to learn the science behind, the research behind, the cognitive pieces, the instructional pieces behind, so that they have an anchoring concrete thing, which seems to be a love of school leaders is to have a thing. Um, so we are, we are driving all work around this instructional practice guide so they feel like they're giving feedback, they're helping their teachers move forward, and it's a concrete way that they can also measure where their readiness is. So that, that is a real focus across our work is giving our anchoring our principals work and how do I effectively give teachers feedback? So what do I need to look for? What should be there? How should my teacher be engaging in the instruction? And why should my teacher be engaging in that? So we're really anchoring that leader prep around that tool and how that tool will play in actual practice for school leaders. How about Massachusetts? I, we agree here that school leaders are critically important in supporting reading instruction. And like Tennessee, we're also developing an online course that will be free and open to all, including aspiring principals as well as acting principals. And we want to do this in order to ensure at least a baseline level of knowledge of current evidence-based practices. We're also working now on what we call a content-specific literacy observation tool. This is like Tennessee, we recognize the importance of principals providing feedback to teachers, and we want to use that tool in order to help principals provide meaningful feedback that is focused and specific on literacy lessons that they observe within our teacher evaluation process and teacher evaluation framework. So I would say, Karen, I think one of the messages you're hearing from us is not just Massachusetts, but also Tennessee is the importance of coherence within the state agency and using the available levers to us, whether it's licensure, educator preparation, in-service professional learning, access to high-quality instructional materials, whether we're working with colleagues in our targeted assistance or statewide systems of support, we're really trying to use the levers available to us as a state agency to bring a coherent effort to bear on improving literacy instruction for all the nearly 1 million students in Massachusetts. I like that word coherence. It's hard to bring coherence to, you know, unruly, <laughs> unruly local, local uh, school systems sometimes. And I think that's a great way to kind of start wrapping up, but I, I can't leave talking about literacy in Tennessee without asking, how are you including Dolly Parton? Like, she's got to be part of this conversation, right? <laughs> um, absolutely. So I, I know that Dolly has deeply founded, you know, free books, access, making sure all children have the opportunities to that. 
we actually are partnering with one of her foundations to continue some of the family work, like the Ready for K app, the um, the family free books. And so she is definitely supporting us in the background and certainly hoping that she will support us for some of our um, communications and working to um, make that happen. But she is a very busy young lady and know that she is doing a lot of things and supporting us globally. Well, I've just been really impressed with her. Um focus on getting actual books in actual children's hands, as opposed to, you know, apps and I mean, virtual books are great and all of that, but like actual physical books in actual children's hands, it seems to me is really, really important. And I've just been impressed with her focus on that. And um, I'm glad to hear that the State Department of Education recognizes her her, her brilliance in noting that one simple thing, getting getting books in the hands of kids. Um, Massachusetts doesn't have Dolly Parton. Do you have anybody else? <laughs> you got somebody that you're that you can throw up as a as a celebrity partner. We have Ben Affleck. We have uh, we have Matt Damon. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, I, got, I think Massachusetts has some work to do on that score. So, um, all right. Well, this has been fabulous. This is this is kind of um, uh, the culmination of a, a series of episodes that we've been doing on reading instruction that I think are go- are going to be really helpful to educators around the country. I hope will be ed- will be helpful um, to any of our listeners. I hope you let me know if if this is helpful and what else you'd like to hear from. But I really appreciate uh, the three of you coming on and really sharing some deep work that is clearly happening, thoughtful work, deep work. And over time, I'm hoping we see some real improvements in the NAEP scores, in just children learning to read and enjoy reading um, uh, in your states and across the country. So thank you so much for, for, for all your wisdom that you've shared today. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for inviting us. Yeah, really excited to um, share the work. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. So that wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Education Trust. This is the fifth of a series of conversations we've been having about reading instruction this spring. The first was a conversation with reading researcher Alfred Tatum, trying to assess the state of reading in the nation. The second was a discussion of a series of legal cases attempting to establish children's right to learn to read. The third was with Timothy Shanahan and Donald Joseph Bolger about the science of reading. The fourth was a conversation with David Leiben and Carol Jago about high quality instructional materials. Another resource is the second season of Extraordinary Districts, which profiles three districts and talks a lot about the reading instruction they're doing. I hope at the end of our series, all our listeners will have a better understanding of why reading is such a hot topic and some of the ways educators can move forward so that all our children not only learn to read, but learn to be engaged citizens who help build and shape democracy. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth, 
See you next time.